0: Perhaps the most memorable encounter I've had with anyone.
1: Culture happens to you, regardless of whether you do something about it or not, right? And the idea there is like, if you're, you either set the culture or the culture gets set for you, but the culture is always going to be there. So I think being deliberate and intentional around kind of your thinking through values and what that means, I think that's a game changer. Welcome to the Own Your Commerce podcast where leading
0: experts, brands, and innovators reveal strategies for e-commerce growth. I'm your host, Jay Myers, and this show is brought to you by Bold Commerce. You all are going to love this episode. I have with me today, Adepreneur who many of you probably know, but in case not, he was the co-founder of WooCommerce, which he's long since exited, but still building tools for e-commerce brands. Since his WooCommerce days, he's built, launched and successfully sold a Shopify app called Convergio. Some of you may have heard it or used it. He's authored a book called Life Profitability, which is a fantastic book about the profitability of life and what that really means. I highly recommend it. But what we're really going to dive in today is a new product he recently launched called Cogsy. Cogsy is one of those tools that really any store doing close to a million and up, even if it's 500,000 and up, they absolutely could benefit from a tool like Cogsy. To sum it up, his slogan for Cogsy is Cogsy is your extra head of operations. We turn data into accurate forecasts for your business, make better decisions about inventory, and free up capital so you can grow better and faster. But Cogs actually does a lot more than that. Even giving uh, customers accurate restock dates right on product pages when it's out of inventory, saying exactly when it's gonna be shipped. It's an amazing tool that most e-commerce brands I know of and probably a lot of people listening could benefit from. And I'm not at all surprised to see someone like AD pulling this off. So let's dive into it. I think you're really gonna enjoy this episode. AD, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been uh, been a bit of a challenge scheduling this, but we made this happen. Thank you
1: so much for being here, man. No, dude. Thanks for having me, Jay. I've been looking forward to this for for a couple of weeks now.
0: It's going to be fun. I got lots of stuff I want to dive into. You are a person that has a truly rich history in e-commerce, in startups, business, life. Um, you're one of the co-founders of WooCommerce. You've had multiple projects since then. Can you kind of walk us through, I know this could be a big question, but walk us through who you are and kind of your story, how you got to where you are today.
1: Yeah, I think the kind of the first thing in the first place my mind goes to there, Jay, because I think this has been the theme that has ultimately driven the things that I've done in my life, both professionally and just personally, right? Which is, I really consider myself a learner and a seeker. And what I mean with that is, if I get curious about something... I am more than happy to go down a rabbit hole, even if that rabbit hole is risky. And I think like that's just, if I, and obviously these things are hindsight, but if I look back on my journey, there's so many things, decisions that I made where that was true. And those things ultimately, whether they worked out or not, is, I think that's a moot point, but those things ultimately shaped what, what came next, right? So I think the interesting bits here then on my kind of your path and who I am today is, the fact that I studied accounting, and I think that's an important note in terms of what I am doing today. Studied accounting in my final year of varsity, built the first product that became WooCommerce. I've always been a tinkerer, but never a great programmer. I'm I'm a much better entrepreneur than I am a programmer. And then WooCommerce was this really wild journey, right? Like as a as a first-time founder, like the same thing for, for Magnus and Mark, my co-founders, we were literally just learning things as we were doing them. Like there was no, it's not like today where, today we have all these playbooks available to us where we can literally stand on the shoulders of giants. And there's so much content available to to help guide you. But WooCommerce was this immense kind of your roller coaster. And then that journey got to a point for me where I felt like I needed a new challenge. I needed to learn something new. So I bounced from there, founded a company called Receiptful Initially Rebranded Convergio, where we built email marketing automation tools for e-commerce brands and sold that to Campaign Monitor two years ago now about two years ago, August 2019. Spent most of 2020 with them post-acquisition. And I now probably see that as the kind of my almost sabbatical year. Not that I wasn't working and wasn't giving them my full commitment, but that was the first time in my professional career that I had some more space in my life. I wasn't the one that was ultimately responsible for so many things. It was not my business anymore. And just having that space, it was interesting, right? Like I think that's where other realizations and learnings then comes from. So not just in the last year whilst I was with them, but I picked up my mindfulness practice, for example, again, and did loads of stuff there and went down a different route. So I think in saying all that, much of my path has been just curiously going out, taking some risks, doing some things, putting myself out there. And I've been fortunate enough that in terms of companies, at least I've had two successes. And then I have a much, much longer list of, of failed projects along the way that, but there's no direct or quantitative reward necessarily. But those things probably added some qualitative benefits that I would not have gotten otherwise.
0: Yeah. That's such an important trait of successful people is they're curious. They ask questions. They wonder why things are done a certain way. Could they be done better? What if we approach this differently? Just to put a little bit of context around some of this. So, when did you co found Woo? When did you leave? When did Converge, You're like, what were some of the dates there?
1: Yeah. So, November 2007, which is 14 years ago. It's crazy. So,
0: that's great. When you think about that, though, like 2007, like, what else existed for an e commerce solution in 2007? <laughs>
1: Not much, right? So I think when we started out, um, so the in two thousand seven was when I built the first products, and like that led to me meeting Magnus and Mark, and like Woo Themes came before WooCommerce. And right, Woo, right. Themes was was officially founded I think July two thousand eight, and I think they, no WooCommerce itself just celebrated its ten year ten year birthday, but two thousand eight, middle thousand eight, Woo came into existence, and back then, like to your point. Not much existed for e-commerce, which is why we ultimately kind of built WooCommerce. We came from the, we built themes on top of WordPress and our customers started demanding, hey, we want to sell online, help us do that. So that's 2008. WooCommerce was 2011. And then I left end of 2013 when I needed a new challenge, founded Receiptful end of 2014, sold that August 2019, as I mentioned, and then started this year, start working on Cogsy. So those are the more relevant dates across that kind of your 14-year span of working within software for e-commerce.
0: Gotcha. Yeah, it always just helps me put things into to a framework when I have dates. So yeah, you mentioned Cogsy, which you recently launched, which I know a bit about, and I know that it's going to help a lot of e-commerce brands make better decisions, sell more, sell more efficiently. And I'm going to get into that in a little bit. But I want to get to a couple more questions on the personal and professional side because I, you just have such an interesting, interesting story. Uh, so how do you choose, I kind of a little bit of insight into your mind, like how your mind works. How do you choose the problems that you're trying to solve? Like you went from WooCommerce to Receiptful, which is kind of like optimizing the, the thank you page and the receipts page and, and turning that into a sales channel, pipeline, and, and now Cogsy, which is completely different. H- how do you choose these problems? Is it people you know that have them or do you just observe? And I'm sure there's probably like lots of opportunities. It, m- it, m- it might not have been Cogsy. You might have had five other things you were <laughs> thinking about doing. How do you pick
1: the ones that you end up doing? Yeah, um, <laughs> I think part of this, Jay, is probably impulsive, right? In the sense that I think when the kind of the inspiration hits, and the idea pops up that the more momentum that I sometimes build as I go through go down that rabbit hole initially, that seems to be a, a pretty good indicator of whether I actually pursue that idea. All right? So I think that's part of it. And again, I think if I think through, Receiptful was a bit of a, it was a gamble, right? We gambled on, can we inject, can we build a solution that injects marketing messaging into receipts? Something like market didn't ask for it and we ultimately used that as a way to then build something where it was a bit more of a me-too product, right? We became yet another email marketing automation tool. But the initial kind of part there was like, this is experimental, like this is not a sure bet. And I think like part of me really likes that part, like likes that risk trade-off. And I say this, this is not the coaching that I would give if a first-time founder comes to me and says, Eddie, what am I supposed to do? How do I go about thinking through my idea idea, I would then I would totally suggest like do like validate your ideas, do the customer development. <laughs> yeah. Don't don't do like do as AD says, not as AD does, kind of situation. <laughs> but like I think that's part of it, right? Is to how much I get obsessed about an idea and then how impulsively I act on that. Like that's generally a theme. But beyond that, at least in when I was sitting down with Cogsy, I think there are a couple of things that was important to me is and evaluating an idea and before committing to it. So one was, I felt it was a, a space that I know well, right? It's at the intersection of software and e-commerce. That's just something that I have loads of experience with, loads of network and loads of social capital, et cetera. So I think it made sense from from that. But what I did this time around was probably two other things. One is I really wanted to solve something that was intellectually interesting and challenging to me, right? So like I... I'm not a a kind of e-commerce operator myself. I've never done that myself, but I can totally geek out around the challenges that operators have, for example. So, and part of what I'm hoping to do with Cogsy here is I don't want to build just a better spreadsheet. I want to build a spreadsheet-like outcome for a brand, for an operator in a whole different way. So I'm super kind of intellectually invested in solving this thing and changing the way this is done at the moment. That was the one part thereof. And then the other part was totally thinking through just business model. Like, is this big enough for me to pursue now? Like, and down to the granular level, like, how do I think about kind of building the product, building the, the revenue model to a point, for example, that it has expansion revenue? So I had a few of those kind of more specific criteria things that was important to me as well as I was evaluating the idea. But that's a more, I would say more evolved approach, I was going to say mature, but it's not very mature, but evolved approach where like, I didn't necessarily do that with Receiptful and Chrome And again, like WooThemes and WooCommerce was very impulsive. Like We just built a product, took off, and then we figured things out from there. So it didn't have that idea, that you know, kind of validation or even kind of investigation.
0: Yeah, interesting. So that's on the product side. I wouldn't discredit your intuition and your, what you phrased as like energy when you get excited about something, because there's kind of a Venn diagram of generally what creates a successful company. Being passionate about something is one of the circles. It's not everything. Like there has to be market opportunity. You have to have domain knowledge. You have to have the skill and competency to build it and being passionate about it. And when you kind of overlap in the middle is your opportunity. So that is a a big one for sure. Someone who's maybe got all the skill in the world, but building a product that they're not passionate about, that they've only done market validation, but maybe they know zero about the product, they have no experience, probably won't succeed either. So while you say, listen to what you say, not what you do, I think there is some credit to what you do as well, too. I'll just throw that out there but then also on the other side so that's on the product side you're a uh, i don't know what you call it multi-founder serial entrepreneur whatever the whatever word people want to <laughs> slap on it you've uh, <laughs> it's translated you're not afraid to take chances you've probably made big mistakes you've had some big wins you've had dark moments you've probably had to learn a ton and i know this is something that you're passionate about because i've i've heard you speak about it and i've you know seen you post things um but can you talk me through some of the values that are important to you that you've learned over the years through these companies? Because that is a big part of building a great product is the values, principles in the company and the people behind it. Because at the end of the day, a, a product is just as good as its people. So through your journey, what what are some of those values that are important to you now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, Jay. Because I think and um, part of the answer, by the way, here is just that as I have kind of gone on to founding my third company here is the thing, one of the bigger things that I try and do is I try and take the learnings from the previous company and the previous journey, and I try and take the best things and I try and reapply them and I try new things on top of that. And like one of the more persistent things has always been around culture and values of the kind of both the you know internally for the team that you build, but also how that ultimately gets into the product and into the brand, into the marketing. So just thinking through that has been very important. And I I'll never forget, I think it's Jason, Jason Cohen who's who's now the founder at WP Engine, I think he is, is credited with saying, culture happens to you regardless of whether you do something about it or not, right? And the idea there is like, if you're, you either set the culture or the culture gets set for you, but the culture is always going to be there. So I think being deliberate and intentional around kind of your thinking through values and what that means, I think that's a game changer. So where I'm at today, interestingly enough, so my personal journey there's a bit of an arc in the sense that trying to, because I know you like dates, um, around about <laughs> 2015, um, 2015 Convergio is growing really well. Receiptful Convergio growing really well. My wife and I had a young baby in the house. Our second was one and a half at the time. And then I get to this point in my life where I completely, like I feel stuck in a corner, just very angry, frustrated, and and anxious. And, I almost got a divorce and that was literally this culmination of, I think this accelerated path that I'd been on, but also a very narrow path of, you know, you build a business, you work hard. And like, if you want to move forward, you just push forward. You just go, go, go. And in like going through our experience, and we didn't get a divorce, my wife and I are still together today. We recently celebrated our 11th wedding anniversary but that was a pivotal moment for for me, at least as a person. And what that sparked, and I will link it back to your kind of question around the values that I kind of live by today. What that sparked was my—I had a therapist that got me on this path of mindfulness, broadly speaking, and just learning so much more about kind of both the kind of the, my masculine and feminine energies and how this kind of default mode that I'd always been on wasn't necessarily going to work for the rest of my life. And the way in I now think about this is. This is not to to punt my own book. I published a book called Life Profitability earlier this year. I was going to bring that up. That I
0: had that on my <laughs> list of uh, things I wanted to talk to you about. So go right ahead.
1: Awesome. Um, the idea there, and Life Profitability was the successor of kind of my team and I in conversio stumbling onto this language, which is how do we build a team in a company that's life and family first? And in our minds, what it meant was as individuals, like we shouldn't, do work and work for companies and work on teams where we always have to kind of, you know, sacrifice life to build a business and to make progress. Like that just felt like this zero sum game that nobody is ever happy with. And the way I kind of positioned this to anyone, that asked me like, Eddie, aren't you speaking about work-life balance? I think the, the key thing that, we're, that I thought through was when you suggest that there is something like work-life balance, you're also suggesting that these two things are separate and they can keep each other in balance. And I just don't philosophically believe that's the case. I think work is just part of life. Life is this bigger container or bigger opportunity we have and work is just one component thereof. There's probably loads of other things that compete for our energy and attention and investment in that realm of life and thus opposites to work. So if you want to kind of your balance, you have to balance those things. So when I think, and this is a very, very high level kind of your elevator pitch to what life profitability means, but the way I want to then think through kind of that is how do I build a business that's not just financially profitable in the narrow sense of the word, but actually life profitable, i.e. this business, this work that I do should empower all those other meaningful things that I want to do externally. And that's probably the kind of my North Star metric now is to be very, very aware of what my life profitability looks like and trying to make sure that I'm always optimizing for that, right? And there's loads of different things in there. Like the big things for me in that are my family, right? Learning, I mentioned learning as an example, and then doing interesting things like making things, right? Like, so those are like three core things that I would put in that bucket or in my life portfolio that I just need to make sure that I am constantly kind of you know, nurturing those things, putting investment into those things, paying attention to those things, being present with those things. And that's really where I think about as I said like, when I build a team in a business, I want the same thing for all of my teammates, right? Like we should always be doing those things to also empower, like it should not just be the founders and the C-levels or whatever that gets that opportunity to get some margin in their life. Like there is a way I think to work together, build a business, build a team that allows everyone to pursue their own unique version of life profitability. Yeah, I
0: love that so much. I You'll always get the pushback saying, Well, that's a cop out. That life is work, and work is life, because then that just means your boss can ask you to work in the evening or something. Or while you're with your family, you're expected to reply to an email. Like some people say, they need that hard line. But I think, I think they're missing the point. I think you can still have your hard line of when you're like at work, not at work. But it's more like separating it out what brings you joy and your happiness. Like you might be miserable at what you do and then try to have a happy life with your family like it's like you can't like you are one person in every area you are and you can't have silos and to me like I agree with you 100% and that's how I look at it I'm also very pretty strict I mean if there's like emergencies that come up I, I don't mind taking them but I'm I'm also I have two young kids and two and I'm, I try to protect my family time as as much as I can so I think you can have your viewpoint and still, Protect your family. It's not like balancing time. It's balancing your happiness, I guess. You probably put it more eloquently in the book, but (laughs) I agree with you.
1: (laughs) And I I think I would change the word happiness for intention and or presence or a combination of those two things. Because you know, happiness gets us into a bit of a kind of measurement. And I'm not sure we measure so many things in our lives, and I'm not sure that it's always great for us, right? Or accretive in any way. So I think about it as intention. And my presence, and like, boundaries should always be there, right? Like it's important to be vigilant around if I'm for example, if I need to be present with my kids and need to play Legos with them right now, I should not be on my phone, for example, right like that's a boundary like there's a simple but simple boundary to impose, but I also avoid kind of very rigid and hard lines in how I kind of demarcate the things I do in my life. So one of the things that I often like doing, don't do it every weekend, but on a Saturday morning like after some exercise, after some family activity, I would kind of in the mid-morning, I would sit at my desk and I would just do email for half an hour, 45 minutes, right? Because everything is calm, nothing is pressing in that moment. And that just allows me to actually do something that I really want to do and that that I feel good about. And like, that's maybe a a kind of a, a glib example, but in the kind of, well, I should only work Mondays to Fridays, these and these times, like that wouldn't fit into those rigid lines. But in a more holistic, wholesome sense, that is actually really good for me to be able to do that. And as I said I don't do it every weekend, but every now and again, like that is what I you know need to do and want to do. And I think that's just where I'm very liquid and kind of what I propose with life profitability to be very liquid around following your energy, right? And how like and then being present with that and being intentional about pursuing that energy when it pops up.
0: Yeah. And no one's forcing you to do that. You're doing that because you want to. It maybe it releases some mental <laughs> thing that you want to do. Like I feel exactly the same way. Sometimes before I go to bed, I know I've got a couple of emails, a couple things. And if I just go and just do that, I just sleep better. I'm less and it doesn't take long. But rather than let things build up for three days, I can remove it from my mind. It's
1: not weighing on me. Yeah, and we know ourselves. Exactly, and that's the final point. I think that's the practice, right? Is like for anyone that wants to do a deeper dive here, like my recipe is not going to work for, for you, Jay, or for anyone else listening, you know, for example, and vice versa. But kind of doing that discovery, being aware of like, what are those intrinsic needs to ourselves that you need those unique things, and then being able to find ways to better optimize them over time. Like that's the generic playbook here is if you're aware of those things, then you can actually prioritize them.
0: Yep. I know people that wake up half an hour, 45 minutes before their kids. They get a few things and different people have different rituals in the morning. Some people take it for their own space, their own mind space. Some people want to like get the their creative work done. Some people want to check off a bunch of emails or whatever it is so that by the time the kids wake up, their head's in the right space. And what it can be different for different people. For one person they need to meditate, one person they need to answer a few emails. one people some people don't want to turn on their emails until 10 a.m. They want to do all their creative work first and it's different. there is not you nailed it like there isn't a formula. Different things energize us and allow us to be our best version of ourselves. I can tell you for me like if I wake up and there's a few things I need to do, like some messages start coming in if I can just address a couple and then I go downstairs and I'm with my kids I, I leave my phone away. like I'm with them for an hour we have breakfast, we play Lego every day too. (laughs) It's coincidentally. But if I'm like, if I have my phone with me and I see a message, I'm there, but mentally I'm not there. And so I have to kind of like do that first, get a few things out of the way. And so it's, um, we're all different. Where This book, Life Profitably, where can someone get it if they're interested? Is it on your site or on Amazon or?
1: It is on Amazon. That's probably the easiest for most people. Otherwise, all the kind of different links would be on my uh, personal website as well, atii.me. Okay,
0: cool. So... With all that said, (laughs) we've talked about your history, your background, your philosophy, your values, how you make decisions. Let's talk about (laughs) Cogsy. This is where you are today. All of this, everything you've done in life has brought you to this moment right here talking to me. You ever think about that? Like everything you do, you've like, if you turn left down a road instead of right, you might've married a different person or started a different business or, you know, it's our life is just a series of circumstances, but here you are. You're building Cogsy. And that's what I want to talk about. What, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but we didn't get into the nuts and bolts. What is Cogsy? What does it do for, for e commerce brands?
1: Yeah. So we're positioning Cogsy as being the kind of the, the extra head of operations for your kind of direct to consumer or your modern retail brand. And what that effectively kind of means at the core today, and what the kind of current version of the park does, Jay, is that we help brands have the right stock. At the right time, um, in some way that kind of optimizes for working capital. So the philosophy there is like we want to ultimately help brands grow, not just grow but grow better. So really paying you know, paying due care to the kind of underlying unit economics and metrics related to that. So we do that. Um, that's the one kind of your primary action that we drive. And then we've got a secondary action that we acknowledge that sometimes the kind of there's gaps in the demand supply of your products. So we built this really great your function called customer-centric back orders. And what it is, is it's because we see all of your inventory data or related kind of data and we see the purchasing plan, we can actually, actually give a brand's customers a date, next available shipping date for products when they're out of stock. And what ultimately happens then is Brand uh, customers can buy those products with confidence and with trust right It's not it's not like backing a Kickstarter campaign and you don't know a like am I ever going to get this product that I just bought or like b what is the timeline right like this is there's an accurate date here which says hey eighty purchase product today you kind of we are shipping this on twenty seven october right because the brand knows that that's when they have it available, and what we're seeing with our kind of early customers is that that converts so much higher than obviously not selling when you're out of stock. But generally kind of what brands do today is some kind of back in stock notifications as a fail-safe almost. The challenge with that is like depending on the timeline from where I input my email onto a website saying, yes, I want this product. I want the notification when it's back in stock, my purchasing intent in that moment is not as high as when I get the get the email. So with the customers and back orders that we've built, we can essentially strike when the iron is and net purchasing intent is, is the highest. And I said, our, our brands are seeing significantly higher conversion rates as a result. I've done that a hundred times. I've entered my email on something
0: out of stock. I either A, don't notice the email when it comes in or B, I've bought something else or C, by the time it comes, I, yeah, I've lost interest. It was an impulsive decision. I saw an Instagram ad and I, I've moved on. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's so interesting. So Okay, so what does this look like in a practical sense for a store? Like does it does it give them reports on what they need to order and when? Is it what is the actual interface and what does a store interact with?
1: Yeah, so I think again, so it's probably two philosophical things and I'll get more specific. One thing kind of from the start that my conference, Stefan and I decided was we didn't want to just build a spreadsheet on steroids, right? I think there are many really good tools out there that helps brands kind of with everything from the kind of inventory, planning, purchasing, operational bits in their business, most of those things still look like spreadsheets. And I totally get it. Like they, there's a, the old cliche, which is your new software solution is always competing against an intern with a spreadsheet, right? Which is the <laughs> case with so many things. So as a kind of a truism, like I, I totally get that. But when we thought about Cozy, like we didn't want to build just a spreadsheet on steroids. I right? mean, we, we are kind of totally rethinking what that kind of user experience needs to look like. So that's the one part. There. The second part is we also don't want to build a reporting tool or analytics tool. I think brands have, often have too much data. And the challenge when you have a data or even an insight, if a software solution gives you an insight, is you as the kind of operator, the person that needs to action this thing, you still need to contextualize this. You need to figure out like what else do you need to take action here. So the way we're positioning Cogsy at least is to be an action-taking platform. Right, so when we spin up a insight for you, we always want to help you take an action. And right now today uh, with the current product that's live, those two actions are on the purchasing side and then the back order side. And on the purchasing side, kind of very concretely, what that looks like is literally kind of you click a button at any time and for all the kind of your vendors or products that need replenishment at that stage, um, we will spin up optimal and optimized purchase order for you that you can just review. And that becomes the starting point for you to then kind of continue the purchasing workflow. Like we don't, like depending on what your tech stack looks like, you can totally run with the purchasing workflow within Cogsy to receive the units there over time. Or we can sync it back to kind of, you know, if you're using a different IMS or Anvil, for example, on a purchasing side as a purchasing platform, totally do that there. But the idea there is that we're not just showing you, hey Jay, here's 10 products that are likely to run out of stock before you can replenish them, right? So you need to replenish them now. We're actually giving you that ability to say, just click a button and just do the hard work for me, right? Because ultimately, what Cogsy does underneath the surface is we are consolidating data for you from different sources, right? So many of our bigger customers are like, for them, we're consolidating data across their IMS, their 3PL provider. And then for good measure, we interject things like their Google Analytics data in there to inform our. forecasting accuracy. So got all these data sources. And you're essentially, if you're buying Cogs today, you're essentially trusting us to do all of the kind of harder math work for you to essentially kind of take those first couple of steps for you and deciding, hey, which products do I need to purchase next? How many do I need to purchase, et cetera? Does it take into account
0: seasonality or trends and like holidays and stuff like that? Or is it just off of historical data?
1: Yes. So yes, we do consider seasonality, the the various, we've got a couple of different machine learning based algorithms that we use. Some are better at detecting seasonality and accounting for that. So yes, we already have that today. What is interesting, again, like you'll, for anyone listening to a software founder ever getting you're too philosophical, it means that they're way kind of you're down this rabbit hole. But another one of those kind of philosophical things is on the forecasting side, I actually don't believe that kind of improving your forecasting methodology or accuracy by 1% is probably very hard to do, right? And it probably doesn't have the kind of the benefits that you expect for it or to have, right? So the way we are thinking about it is we would much rather have a brand be five to ten percent more agile, more proactive, more flexible in how they run their operations, how they kind of do their energy planning and purchasing. So that's what we're optimizing for on our side. And there's so many solutions out there that suggests, you know, AI, machine learning, all these high kind of you know, high buzzwordy things. And they're just not as valuable, right? So to your point about seasonality, what we're currently working on is, and this is very applicable, many of our first kind of initial customers here are super fast growing brands and ultimately no forecasting algorithm can accurately kind of predict the future right when you're growing at such a clip right the kind of your next year is going to be totally different to kind of last year so what we're building at this stage is essentially what we are calling for the moment work in progress growth assumptions so taking the kind of the, the forecasting that we do programmatically and then layering what the business understands about itself and what that means is everything from when you are planning your campaigns to kind of growth rates in different times of year. Certain kind of you're applying a multiplier, for example, for Black Friday because you know that your kind of Black Friday in your business drives ten x the growth that it does in any other month, for example. So, really, kind of going back to how would you build holistically build the best kind of model and visualization of what the future of the business looks like instead of just relying on a single data point, i.e. a machine learning-based algorithm to spit out numbers and try and predict the future.
0: This feels all very relevant right now going into, this episode will probably air fairly soon, probably either just before or during the holidays. But all the talk right now is around supply chain and brands are saying you don't even need to have a sale; just have inventory, <laughs> because it's uh, there's all these images you're seeing around the internet with stuck boats at sea and inventory shortage. And uh, you know, Nike said that they have run out of fabric for all their clothing jerseys. Yeah, I don't think they said shoes, but like athletic wear, like they're out. That's it; like they've made what they can make for the for the holiday season. So, a like the first thing that comes to mind is. I guess, I mean, if there's a, if you can't get the inventory, Cogsy can't help with that. But the ability to capture... I saw an interesting phrase. I think it was on your Caraway case study. That what was the wording? It said, capitalizing on the intent of purchase. That was like the phrase. And I think that's something that brands, my observation is they're not good at. Like when something's out of stock, it's out of stock. Like so an email me later is... I wonder what the data on that, I don't know, do you have any data on what percentage of email me went back in stock of those actually turned into a sale?
1: Yes, and I can't quote my source, but okay. <laughs> essentially kind of the average is, the range seems to be 5 to
0: 15%. Interesting, yeah, I'm not surprised. I was going to guess 10%, but yeah. And versus being able to order with an estimated date and they can actually place the order. Do you have data on this? these numbers yet or is it too early?
1: So our data is too early, but anecdotally, what we can tell you for again, like I think part of this, by the way, as well, Jay, is like the other variable here is not just the dates that we're showing, kind of being more customer centric, right? It's also you know brands that have more loyal customers or kind of have that brand affinity and their product market fit. They will always do better here, assuming that's the case. Like what we've seen, you know, like many of our, I think, of the brands that we're currently working with fall into that exact same category. They will tell you that even prior to prior to using Coxie, so Caraway being an example, they, Caraway was our first customer and they pioneered doing this and they just did it manually. And if you ask them about their data, then anecdotally, in the last year or so, conversion rate hasn't changed significantly for products that are on back order versus products that are in stock. So, but again, like that's still too early for Coxie to at least authoritatively say, here's the data, here's why that is significantly better. We're a young product, young company in that regard. Anecdotally, it looks like we are far outperforming that five to fifteen percent range on back-in-stock notifications as one alternative to solve the problem of those times when you don't have stock yet of a product because it's got delayed, etc.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I can one hundred percent sympathize with that. If someone's buying for price, if price is the value driver of the purchasing decision, they're more likely to go back to Google and find the next site that sells the same product. But if it's Caraway, who is a D a C brand, they manufacture their cookware. No one else does. They have loyal customers who ha, who are bought into the brand. A product like Cogsy probably works exceptionally well. So that's yeah, it's going to be on a spectrum. It's also an interesting indicator. I bet you, you'll maybe get to a point where you can write a blog post on this one day. It's if if Cogzy uh, converts, went out of stock at fifteen to twenty percent maybe your brand is weak. If it's 40 to 60%, you've got an average brand. If it's 80 and up, you've got a strong brand because they're willing to take out their credit card and pay even though they're not getting it. It's on a ship date. I, I guarantee there's some some data points around that. I mean, Jay,
1: like what you described there sounds like the kind of challenge that <laughs> I will happily, ta- happily take on. And, and what I heard you saying is, AD, can you please redefine how Net Promoter Score works with these kind of, <laughs> these, this interesting data set you have there. So, challenge, challenge accepted. I actually think it's a great idea, by the way. I think correlating how brands, because it is, I think the higher the conversion rate on products that are out of stock, um, I think there is a close correlation to, to brand affinity. So, you've got me curious, you've got me. Very very curious to see how this plays out in the in the next two or three years. CPS, Cogsie.
0: the Cogsy, the Cogsy promoter score <laughs> or Cogsy uh, loyalty loyalty score. Yeah, yeah,
1: we'll do it. That actually,
0: <laughs> that Caraway um, case study was really interesting. Uh, there was a couple things I thought that stood out to me. There is, you have to be in the right mindset or have a, a couple operational things about your company that have to be in place for a project like Cogsy to be very effective. I think there were, I was just pulling it up. There was five listed in there. You need to be a data-driven, data-driven inventory management. The only way to rely on backorder model is to implement smart inventory management. This way you can have real-time inventory, accuracy, over-communicate, company culture, making sure everyone is on board with the importance of data, and then the nature of the product. Actually, this is one we just talked about. FOMO doesn't work for everyone. Um, it depends on the brand. So I can definitely see that being some companies have to set themselves up for success with Cogsy.
1: Yes. And I think the kind of two things that I can just pull out on those, I think from a kind of data standpoint, ultimately, like this is still a kind of crap in crap out situation. If, if you aren't good with, and that's what we find with many growing brands, right? They often have the, the creative and the product and the growth side of the business figured out, but the operational side is not as sophisticated, right? They, they've not prioritized it. and. Ultimately, in that realm, like that's where I think there's ways to get better, right? Like Figuring that out, like your measurements and how you run your processes, et cetera, is probably where you eke out, you do one thing consistently for a quarter and you eke out 2 or 3% extra margin or a 5% increase on your return on working capital, right? Whatever metric you want to use there. And I think the key thing there is the reason why that matters today is, yes, e-commerce globally has had such significant tailwinds, right? And we all know, all the cliches, the pandemic has accelerated that. What is also true, though, is that we can't continue growing at the same clip, A, right? And the more that grows, the more it invites competitors into the ecosystem. And what brands have already started seeing is that their customer acquisition cost is kind of going through the roof alongside this kind of inflated or accelerated demand. So I actually believe that, the best brands of tomorrow won't grow at all costs, they'll figure out a way to grow better. And that's where kind of, you know, where Coggy comes in and I think operational excellence comes in. Like that's, there's another lever to pull here where it's not just about juicing the top line kind of revenue growth, but also making sure that what's happening below the line is effective, you know, cost efficient, effective, etc. cetera, right? Mm-hmm. So like that's our spiel here. Like that's how we're thinking about that. And to come back to a point where I made, made about the data is the very first thing that most brands should start doing is just better start kind of tracking their any inventory rate, rate data. Costs involved, just calculating cost of goods sold, for example. Like, there are so many tools out there that helps you with that. Like, all of those things are improvements that brands can implement and should probably implement. Like, that's a key step to starting to grow, grow better.
0: I have a theory that e-commerce brands that are going to be winning in the next three to five years are the ones that are operationally excellent you talked earlier about we're building on on the shoulders of giants and we're every year you know you go back 10 years if you just had a decent looking website you could do well and then if it was like if you had a mobile friendly website it did really well but then now everyone has a mobile friendly website if you have each year what companies like shopify have done have made it so easy to start a store, like you can have a store up and running. You can have take payments tomorrow. It can look beautiful. It can load fast. It can have everything about it is is like you would what you would have paid hundred thousand dollars for <laughs> ten years before. So it's actually becoming in a lot of ways harder for brands to stand out. And I think the thing that a lot of them maybe aren't focusing on the ones that are winning are is operational excellence and. I think personally that this is going to be a big differentiator. I don't know if it's a couple years or if it's three to five years, but in the near future for e-commerce. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that?
1: No, 100% right. I think we're already seeing that as well, Jay, is that brands are starting to think earlier in their journey about what kind of operational excellence or just efficacy and efficiency actually looks like. Right. So I see more people with operations in their title you're popping up at these direct-to-consumer brands much, much sooner. So I think that's already happening as well. And to your point about standing out, like the one thing, because I agree on the tech side of things, right? Like if you think through this as kind of your in a lifecycle manner, right? The first phase of e-commerce was all around the platforms that needed to get built, right? Everything from WooCommerce to Shopify, et cetera, loads of infrastructure-related stuff, payment processing needed to happen to enable e-commerce. Then... I think in the last you know, a couple of years, we've been in the second phase thereof, which has all been around the kind of creative and the growth side of things. So everything from how do I send kind of marketing emails more easily, right? Like MailChimp completely kind of revolutionized that as an example, right? To so anything that we do these days, which is SMS stuff, Facebook Messenger stuff, like all these channels popped up. We built out the design side of things. Like that's really sophisticated and kind of well-stocked today. The next part now is like to your point is around operations. How do we, like, because we've neglected this. Like, there aren't that many tools out there, whether they're direct competitors of Cogsy or not. Like, that's a moot point. There are just not as many. There aren't as many inventory planning tools, for example, as there are emails, you know, marketing solutions, right? So, my point there is, I think there's a lot of work to be done there. And again, like stuff that's not even tech related. One that I'll throw up in the air. I saw this service the other day called ImportYeti.com. And effectively, I think what it does is it searches the U.S. customs database. But if you know for any of the brands you love, and I think it's U.S. only, for any of the brands you love, and you knew what their legal entity name was, and you input that there, assuming that they import their goods from abroad, you can actually see all of that because it's publicly available information. You can see the kind of your import slips, or whatever the fancy people call them. And you can trace that back to oh, this supplier in China is manufacturing kind of these goods, which and my kind of tangent here is, if that's the case, that's a shortcut to just sourcing products from the same factory, right? And competing against some kind of incumbent. So product sourcing as well, like not just on the tech, you know, tech side of things, but product sourcing, manufacturing, all those things has also changed and that's also become easier. So I truly believe that you know one of the next core competencies that brands will need to build. I've got a couple, but I think it is around operational excellence. I think they need to get really great storytelling and branding to support the products that they're pushing out the market. Because as I said, product sourcing is super easy. And then I actually think the kind of other thing that pops to mind is is access to capital. I think interesting enough, in the last couple of years, we're seeing direct-to-consumer brands now now raising venture capital and raising it on similar terms to what software companies were doing, you know, five years ago. And I put a a mentor and a friend who kind of said to me that he said, AD, you know what? If you've got access to capital, you can solve any problem in the business. It's then it's like building a business is not a challenge. And like the again, like it sounds a bit of a glib truism, but the idea there is if you can attract capital with what you're doing, you're essentially buying yourself time to figure things out. So I actually think like those are the core competencies going forward versus what we had to do in the past, which was how do I put a tech stack together to start selling online? How do I figure out growth channels? Like those things are still important as well, but I don't think that they're the the kind of competitive advantages of the future for for brands. That's interesting.
0: I agree with the access to capital. I also just our story at Bold is you know we're in the middle of Canada where our headquarters is. We're now spread out all over North America, but typically not a great place to raise capital. There's not a huge investment community here. And there's a lot of government grants and tax credits and things like that, but not a huge investment community. And we went seven years without raising anything. And we like it kind of put us in a mindset like we have to succeed. There's pros and cons to that, as I definitely agree, because you might just do what makes money rather than build a valuable company. And it's easy. We had to, um, it's hard when you're starting off. If someone came to you right now and if you had no capital in the bank and said, Adi, can you build, I need Cogsy to do this and I'm going to pay you $100,000 to do it, to tailor it exactly to the way I want to use it. That might not be what's best for the market, but it's what's best for me as a customer. But if you need capital, then you end up doing that because you need to take the money. (laughs) And it actually then money, that customer's money dictates your product roadmap. Sometimes you're lucky and it is a customer that has an aligned need as as the market, but sometimes it's not. And that's definitely happened to us in both cases. We've had each scenario over our time, but it's something to watch out for. So it's uh, it's a good observation.
1: Totally. And I think that just not to make it too promotional about, about Cogsy, right? I think when I look at the available kind of tools that would compete against us if we were a mature product today, whom we would compete if we were mature, because we are the younger kind of upstart here. But if I look at those tools, I think Again, like I mentioned earlier, like we're not trying to build a spreadsheet on steroids. I think so many tools have been built in there an incremental improvement on what came before them. And I think that's kind of a part of that is exactly what you described there, Jay. It's like you get a customer in the door and they're willing, they ask you for this, you do that thing. And that been leads to this incremental product that gets built. And many, many great businesses have been built incrementally. What we're doing with, with COGSY at least and the way we are funding this is to kind of you know, make a bigger bet here, which is making an exponential jump on how things are done today versus how we imagine things are done, how brands are doing things in two, four—you know, three to four, you know, three, four, five years' time. So I totally hear you there. And the capital in that scenario allows you to take a different path and play a different game and make a different kind of bet than the one you would need to do if it was more bootstrap and more incremental.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. So then I want to ask you one last question, and then a couple of quick questions just for the brands listening, like other business owners. Speaking of that, what is your long term goals for Cogzy? <laughs> You've got some capital and you're growing. Like, and I know you can't say everything, but maybe in the next maybe three to six months, what are some things you're excited about?
1: Yeah, so I should also a bit of chicken egg here, uh, Jake. I think you have slightly more context, and I I will leave that mysteriously secretive. What am I excited for in the next three to six months? I think the important parts are that Cogsy is up in the market now. We are onboarding new customers every single week. And what we're doing is we're really using those customers to help us prioritize kind of what the roadmap looks like. So, And I can already see on the product kind of side of how quickly the product is evolving today. So that is really exciting. There, I totally expect some bigger news to come out here in the <laughs> next couple of months or by the time, like they might've dropped by the time this this goes live. I think okay. ultimately I'll, I'll tease out the kind of the bigger vision here, right? Which which is ultimately still, Jay, that we are trying to replace a spreadsheet and a spreadsheet-based workflow without this looking like spreadsheets. And we're I'm still conceptualizing this. I don't even know whether this can work, but for anyone that's ever built a kind of you know, medium-term, I think 12-month kind of purchasing plan, In a spreadsheet, I visualized an alternative to that 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 looks more like a GitHub commit history. So same outcome, totally different UI, UX, visual, and just workflow. So that's the kind of thinking here. I don't know whether that's going to work, by the way, and whether it's going to be useful. But that's the kind of things that we are already working on and will be working on. You will not find rows and columns and cells with formulas in Coddy anytime soon. If, If that ever becomes the case, then I have downgraded the vision I've signed up to kind of manifest here.
0: Yeah. Well, I think the sky's the limit and it's going to become more and more relevant. So I wish you all the best with your <laughs> with your future roadmap, whichever way it goes. It sounds like you are a lot like us at Bold. We say we lead with a compass, not a map. We know where we want to go, but we don't know exactly the route to get there. We kind of figure it as we go, but we have a compass and we have a long-term goal in mind. I'm I'm, I'm totally
1: by the way, before your questions, I'm totally stealing that and I'm totally taking that to to my team as well.
0: I hope you do. I hope everyone listening steals it as well too. It's been a really important thing for us to understand that we're going to make mistakes. We're going to run into roadblocks. We're going to hit areas that we can't get around. And, but that doesn't change our goal. It's, we have a compass, not a map. So, and I think too many companies try to have a five-year roadmap, (laughs) even the word, right? Like we need to maybe take that word out of it. like, and we call it like our, our compass session. (laughs) But yeah, I'd love to end on a couple quick questions. I didn't send these to you ahead of time. So for everyone listening, I'm putting 80 on the spot here, Uh, a little bit of a lightning round. And so if you get a total brain fart and you can't answer, I'll ask the next one. That's fine. But I feel like, I feel like you're going to have good answers to these because also your, your wife owns a, a fairly successful e-commerce company as well too, right?
1: Yes. And she just sold that. Oh, okay. It really kind of, Yeah. So she just exited that. But yes, but like, I think part of the whole coxie genesis was also me being her tech and financial co-pilot in that business. Because I couldn't do the 99% of things that actually kind of needed to be done in the business, but I could add somebody on the tech and the financial side.
0: Yeah. So one way or another, you've got some background in this. So first question, what is the biggest mistake you see merchants make selling online?
1: not having kind of your good data practices
0: in place. Mm-hmm. Do you have a pet peeve when you shop online?
1: Oh, when I shop online?
0: When you're shopping, what really annoys you that a brand does while you're shopping or during Ooh, the experience or in the follow-up emails, maybe not using good email <laughs> <laughs> hygiene
1: <laughs> receipts? Yeah, well, the thing that irritates me to the nth degree is if I'm forced to create an account. Like just, I sometimes I just shop and I'm always, like this is just a one-time buy, just make this quick. Right? I don't take all of my details.
0: Will you abandon a checkout if you don't, if you have to create an account? Is it that significant for you?
1: I have, yes. Like if you, you force me into this, I'm like, you know, this is just like too much hassle. Like I, I'm not here to become a lifelong customer. I'm here to purchase this one product this one time.
0: Yeah. And for anyone listening, like you can backload account creation. They can, customers can create them after they, after they purchase. You can give them benefits for creating accounts. You can, you can put like offers and special like, benefits inside their account page. So create an account, get our exclusive offer. There's a hundred different ways you can do that way better that actually doesn't interrupt the shopping flow and it does one better. It brings that customer back to your store to get an offer and possibly shop again. So like, I think it's like bad on so many levels. <laughs> so you, you hit one of mine as well too. What is your favorite thing about your job? The ability to build a team, the opportunity to build a team. Mm, I like that. What's your favorite online store or the last place you bought something?
1: Oh, the last thing I bought something, I bought a, a Yeti Rambler for a customer because a, a mentor of mine got me one, a big, I think it's a liter that's in metric or imperial, or, yeah, yeah, or, I don't yeah, know yeah, which yeah. one it's which. The, the, the one that 30, I use is 32 ounce or whatever, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think it's a 36 ounce. And then I just use it every single day. It's just it's been an amazing gift. So I got one of our customers one
0: as well. I'm drinking coffee from a Yeti right now that I poured before we started this podcast and it's still piping hot.
1: Exactly. (laughs) They really really work. Amazing product, right? I I don't use it for warm liquids as much, but for water, like it's my my go-to vessel during the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah, me too. Most of our listeners are business owners, obviously. They're entrepreneurs. You are a business owner, an entrepreneur. Do you have any quotes or advice? Or just, yeah, like sayings or things that you've lived by that are really important to you that you find yourself always going back to, or maybe you have it on a wall or you've shared at talks, different things that you would like to share?
1: It feels like the kind of question that I should totally be able to answer.
0: <laughs> Me too. But when I, if I was put on the spot, I would, I, I'd be the same way too. I'm like, oh, there's so many.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I think like the way I actually think about these quotes, almost mantras, Jay, is that For me, at least I've been very seasonal in my life. So like for a season, like this one thing sticks in my mind and that's really driving force. And then looking three years later, like it's a totally different thing drives me. The one thing I will say, like the book I most often recommend to anyone, and I've read it twice already, is Siddhartha by Herman It Has nothing to do with business. And it's just a fascinating book that, I said, I go back to it every now and again. Understanding, I won't give it away as much. The book is about a journey. And I think that there's just so many interesting tidbits and almost a kind of a, a lens to look at business or look onto business from. So yeah, like that's the one I would throw out as a kind of almost an overarching thing that I go back to every now and again.
0: Is that the one by Herman Heese? Am I saying it right?
1: I, I don't know. I don't know Herman personally, but but yes, that's the that's the author.
0: Oh, okay, okay. I just oh yeah, they are all the same. Okay, never mind. I just Googled it and I saw three different Siddhartha books, all with different covers, but it's the exact same book. They're just one's the Audible, one's the Amazon. Okay. I'm adding it to my reading list. I have not read that one. Last question. If you had to give some advice to someone who this may or may not be possible, but they want to double their e-commerce sales in the next year or grow significantly, they could be getting started, could be running already. But what is one of like the biggest levers? Or if you could, you know, remove all marketing tactics except for one that you've seen work over the years. What is one thing you think a brand should focus on to drive as much growth as possible?
1: On the marketing side, Jay, I like double down on whatever is working today, right? Like that's a, I think that's a go-to strategy in any business. Instead of like trying to diversify, spin up something new that you don't have a core competency on, I think the surest bet for most brands is to figure out like. How do I really double down on this thing that's already working and getting those, whether it's unit economics better, whether it's just volume that's that you know, needs to be kind of more for you to to double up. I don't know, like there's some nuance there, but that's where I would start. Like I'm, as a kind of person and as a founder, like I'm more double down on my strengths versus trying to fix my weaknesses. Yeah. Pay attention to where
0: things are working. Your best customers, your customers that are spending the most, find out what channels they're coming in, why they're buying. And I agree 100% double down on that. Yeah, that's so good. That's all I got. You did pretty good in the lightning round, considering I never sent (laughs) it to you before. (laughs) So where can people go to learn about you and Cogsy? And is it actually I should have asked this earlier, but can people just download it and try it or is it uh, like a sign up process or give us the details
1: on all that? Yeah, so coxie lives at coxie.com Both the S and a Z or Z, smart to get both domains no, there for good good mispronunciation. <laughs> so coxie.com is also in the Shopify App Store. If you if you search for there, it is self sign up, uh, so you can get into it. Depending on your data integrations, so kind of a new customer might need to ping us and interact with me. I am a sales team of one at this stage, but obviously more than happy to to work with any brand. So those are the ways to to find coxie at least. And if anyone wants to. Learn more about my philosophical inclinations. The place would probably be Twitter, where I'm just 8080i uh, 80, 80 or my website 80i.me.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much, Ady. This has been a real pleasure. A lot of fun. I learned some stuff, caught up with an old friend. Uh, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: No, Jay. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure it's all mine.
0: That's it for another episode of Own Your Commerce. If what you've heard has helped you in any way, I'd love it if you'd leave us a review in iTunes or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast. It's a new podcast and reviews really help spread the word. And if you know someone you think that might benefit from this podcast, share it with a friend. If you'd like to learn more about Bold, visit boldcommerce.com. You can view all our past episodes. And if you have a story you'd like to tell, we'd love to have you on the show. You can apply to be a guest or suggest a guest on our website as well. That's all for now. And we'll see you next week.